0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you news from the front lines. Discuss the historic ousting of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in the US. Francis Sternley interviews former Deputy National Security Advisor to President Donald Trump, Victoria Coates. And I speak to Robert Doerr. President of the American Enterprise Institute. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable
2: hardships to finally reward you with victory.
1: If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong.
3: We're Ukrainians.
1: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 4th of October, one year and 222 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, and US growth editor, Jamie Johnson. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine.
3: Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So, firstly, I think probably just to get it out of the way, really, this bizarre story that's reported by Moscow. So, OK, we're off to a good start. Ukrainian saboteurs have attempted a jet ski landing on Crimea, on the annexed Crimea. Russia's saying that a group made up of a boat and three jet skis apparently heading for Cape Tarkanut, which is the western, the western bit of the peninsula intercepted by russian aircraft pro-russian bloggers then take up the story saying that at least one ukrainian soldier killed in an ensuing fight all happened about one in the morning no claims independently verified and i wouldn't even know where to start quite frankly so hopefully something else will, will come out of that maybe this is ukraine doing some mad stuff trying to see what, what they can get away with or it might all just be made up so let's move on uh, Moscow says it it destroyed 31 drones launched from Ukraine overnight, heading towards Belgorod, uh, Bryansk and Kursk region, so all down south, uh, bordering Ukraine and Belarus, down that, that area. Didn't clarify if any damage was caused, but a source from Ukraine's SBU, the security service, said that they had struck last night an s-400 triumph which is a a very advanced one of russia's most advanced air defense systems and ukrainian media are saying i'm putting the two together and saying that uh, sbu drones fired last night uh, hit this the s-400 near belgorod so possibly russia shot down a load of drones but if that uh, if those reports are to be um, believe then that's the second S four hundred. I think it's one went, went up in Crimea a couple of weeks ago. I mean these are these are modern, like, very modern air defence systems. They they are there to, as the name suggests, you know, defend stuff from threats from the air. So they shouldn't then be falling prey to drone strikes themselves. But we saw one a couple of weeks ago, um, and possibly another one's um, been hit as well. Now separately, inside inside Ukraine, Russia is said to be building a new railway to Crimea to keep supplies. Um, flowing to um, or to the peninsula if it if it loses the south now this comes from a ukrainian military expert comments reported by rbc ukraine this is colonel Vladislav selenzyov who said if this russia's building this line along basically along the north coast of the sea of azov so the the line at the moment road and rail is about 10 or 15 k's north of that, running east-west, roughly, which links up with Tokmak. We talk about Tokmak being a, a logistically important town. It's a big road and rail hub that then links further west to Metatopol and, and, and elsewhere. Tokmak is about 12-ish miles, 15, 20 k south of where the Ukrainian offensive has reached so far. If they get to Tokmak, then uh, Colonel Zeleznyov says that the Kiev will be able to fire on this new rail line, which is not yet complete, but... um uh, you know, they are going, I mean, Russia invests heavily in their railway engineering battalion, so it shouldn't take that long. Now, it seems to be running from Rostov-on-Don down the, along the north coast of the Sea of Azov to, to Crimea. Obviously, they're very concerned about the road and rail link across the Kirsch Bridge being being knocked out by Ukraine. So they're looking for other ways to uh, to try and keep the peninsula supplied. But they're having to move closer to Ukrainian forces, so not, not an ideal not a situation they would, not a decision they would have taken. I would venture if they, if their hand hadn't been forced. So make of that what you will. Now separately, inside uh, inside Ukraine, again back to the uh, Ukrainian security service, the SBU says it's broken up a Russian spy ring in Mykolaiv, which is down south, down on the uh, near um, up the coast from Odessa. SBU said thirteen informants, all local residents, had been arrested, four detained, had already been charged and found guilty of spying and imprisoned. Terms ranging from 8 to 15 years. This group allegedly collected intelligence on um, movements of Ukrainian forces, provided that information to to Russia, which enabled them to carry out attacks. And uh, according to the SBU, this group then passed information to the Russian FSB, the Federal Security Service, translated to FSB, via a liaison who was known as what is a pro-Kremlin blogger known as Sergei Lebedev. Uh, he was indicted on suspicion of treason in June. Now, the SBU, SPU, Ukrainian SBU, in a statement said, "In the course of the investigation into Lebedev's criminal actions, it was established that, following the FSB's instructions, he had remotely established his own espionage network in Mykolaiv region." So we've seen seen this before. There will undoubtedly be uh, be more of that. These little rings of agents. Uh, yeah. So we'll we'll keep an eye on that. Now, separately, the Warsaw Security Forum has been uh, has been going on and uh, NATO's, one of NATO's most senior military officials has warned the, uh, he says, it's a quote, bottom of the barrel is now visible, talking about the West running low on weapons and ammunition for Ukraine. I mean, there's, this is gaining more exposure to uh, to news outlets, so it's worth talking about. I don't think it's as dire as some headlines would like to make out. Rob Bauer, who's a a Dutch lieutenant admiral in the Royal Netherlands Navy, is the chair of um, NATO's military committee. So speaking at the Warsaw Security Forum said, we give away weapon systems to Ukraine, which is great, and ammunition, but not from full warehouses. We started to give away from half full or lower warehouses in Europe. He's calling on governments and defence manufacturers to ramp up production in a much higher tempo we need large volumes, the just-in-time, just-enough economy we built together in 30 years in our liberal economies is fine for a lot of things, but not the armed forces when there is a war ongoing. Now, also at the conference, UK Defence Minister James Heapy, so we have the Defence Secretary at the moment is Grant Shapps, and underneath him there are three defence ministers, one for procurement, one for veterans and uh, and the defence minister who basically gets all the fu- it was described to me as the best job in in defence because they have all the all the kind of the military stuff all the all the action bits without the health health and safety policy and don't park your bikes in front of the you know the fire escape all that kind of stuff so all that sort of wider fluff gets handled by other people but the the, the defence minister James C P gets to um, gets to do warry stuff anyway he he told the um, the Warsaw Defence Forum that Western military stockpiles were looking a bit thin, his words, urged NATO allies to spend um, 2% of national you know, GDP on, on defence as the alliance is committed to. He says, if it's not the time when there's a war in Europe to spend 2% on defence, then when is? We can't stop just because our stockpiles are looking a bit thin. We have to keep Ukraine in the fight tonight and tomorrow and the day after and the day after. So they're all referencing that there is clearly not a a limitless supply of arms and ammunition, but they are not saying it, and us, you know, we've got to be careful about the characterization here, they're not saying it as you're not getting any more or there's nothing left. They are saying these things, making the point that, that we need to focus on the industrial and the, and the economic side of, of this war now, if you hadn't done already, moving into this, as I've said before, this kind of third phase, which is the attritional industrial who can outproduce the other one, basically. Now, I when we were in the States a few weeks ago, I went to the Picatinny Arsenal and they they are ramping up production, or the US is ramping up production of artillery shells, 155 mil, hoping this time next year to produce 86,000 a month, up from 12,000 a month at the moment. So those are the kind of numbers that, that need to be stepped up to. This is happening across Europe to a greater or lesser degree. So I don't think we should view this as they're saying the lock is empty, you're not having any more because there's nothing left. This is part of the conversation about the industrial aspects of this war and the need to ramp up production, restart old, potentially out-of-use lines and get onto a, a, a proper, if not fully mobilised, industrial sector, then not far off it. And uh, that's about it. Also, just to mention, Garry Kasparov, Russian opposition leader, was also at the at the Forum. And he just said a soundbite from him. He said he only talks to Russians who can say, number one, the war is criminal. Number two, the regime is illegitimate. And number three, Crimea is Ukraine. I'd agree with all those. But I think if I was speaking to a Russian who said probably two, two of the three, I would have a conversation with them to try and uh, try and twist their arm on the third. But um, I think those are fairly um, uncontroversial things to say for anyone who's not not um, not drunk. the Zulu Kool-Aid. But I'll take a little pause there, David.
1: Thank you very much, Dom Nichols, for all of that. Uh, Jamie Johnson, can I come to you? You're our US growth editor, so one of the most perfect people really to talk about the astonishing news out of the United States yesterday. This is the news that Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has been ousted from office. Could you talk us through the news, what happened and why is this relevant? Uh,
4: Well, thank you very much. Good afternoon, David. Good afternoon, London. And good morning, America. Yes, um, there's lots to say. Kevin McCarthy's reign as House Speaker is finished. Um, I've just seen a picture of the sign above his office being taken down. But this is not the end. In fact, it might just be the beginning of the chaos and infighting that's coming next. As a sort of brief summary, Kevin McCarthy was deposed by Conservatives within his own party. In a vote which marked the first time this has ever happened, uh, in part due to a dispute over funding for Ukraine. Speaking afterwards, he said that he supported arming Ukraine and that what is happening looks a lot like the 1930s in Germany. He said a lot of actions that Putin takes are very similar to Hitler. And I fear making the same mistake twice and sending the wrong messages. But the thing I would tell everybody is more Americans are dying on the southern border than dying in Ukraine. And that comes down to the domestic sort of policy difficulties that he's had so what happens next well as it stands the sort of plan is straightforward enough they'll take a week they'll try and elect a new speaker and then get back on track but as we know with this sort of thing it's never quite as simple as that there isn't much of a sense inside the house republicans that they will be able to heal the divisions and coalesce around a new speaker anywhere near that time A few names have been floated, including one Donald J. Trump, although he is rather busy uh, in downtown New York at the moment. Elsewhere in Washington yesterday, um, Joe Biden was forced to reassure Western allies that Washington will continue supporting Ukraine in its fight against Russia um, after billions of dollars of aid were ditched from uh, a crucial government bill. Now, the president told Sunak, uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, and other world leaders in a call that he was confident that Congress would eventually back his demand for weapons and money for Volodymyr Zelensky's army. Uh, But he had to earlier sign legislation to avoid a federal government shutdown, which was passed by Congress after a last-minute deal on Saturday. Uh, which sparked fears in Europe. So Mr. Biden had asked Congress for $24 billion, uh, about £19.8 billion, but the final deal to keep the government funded scrapped even a much reduced sum of $6 billion for Kyiv. In response, sort of the White House convened a call with the leaders of NATO, Canada, Germany, Italy, Romania and Britain, as well as the European Commission and European Council and Japan. France's foreign minister was there. A readout from Poland said that Mr. Biden had told world leaders that there was far broader support for Ukraine in Congress than the media reports would suggest. President Duda said Joe Biden began with telling us about the situation in the US and what the real political situation around Ukraine is. Of course, Poland shares a border with Ukraine and has taken in almost one and a half million refugees from the country. So Duda went on. He assured us that there is backing for the continuing support for Ukraine. First of all, for military support. And he said that we are going to get that backing in the Congress. We stand united and ready to provide additional military equipment, financial and political support for Ukraine. Peace and security in Ukraine equals peace and security in Europe, Charles Michel, the European Council president, said after the call. Just as a sort of reminder, the US has provided more than £93 billion to Ukraine, as well as tanks, helicopters, uh, millions of rounds of ammunition and advanced guided missile launchers. But the Pentagon is running low on money to replace what they call critical weapons sent to Ukraine, uh, according to a leaked letter to congressional leaders. There's a, there's around £1.3 billion left to replenish the stocks which were urgently needed to fight an expected Russian winter offensive, the letter from the Department of Defence's chief financial officer said. Without funding now, the US will have to delay or curtail deliveries of air defences, drones and ammunition to Ukraine, it added. And so... Mr. Biden said after the Congress had passed the bill to fund the government operations until mid-November, we cannot under any circumstances allow America's support for Ukraine to be interrupted. Stop playing games. Get this done, he said. Um, And so this all comes sort of just as President Zelensky was in Washington to ask for more help. I think that there's with with what's happened with um, Kevin McCarthy here, he had said that he supported the funding. But on Monday, uh, Dmitry Kuleba, the Ukrainian foreign minister, said that stripping out of the aid was an isolated event. He said, we're working with both sides of Congress so that it does not happen again under any circumstances. Therefore, we do not believe that U.S. support has faltered. However, there's sort of a sense that this must sting a little bit. As I said, Zelensky was in the U.S. Congress just last month. He met with Kevin McCarthy and members of both sides of Congress. Now the funding has been stopped uh albeit temporarily and mccarthy has been ousted there's a sense that will ukraine although ukraine is putting on a sort of brave face and publicly dismissing this episode as a blip there could be further difficulties on the horizon
1: well thank you very much for that jamie could you just quickly talk about the broader context of this i mean western support for ukraine u.s support european support is something we've discussed a lot on this podcast so would you just sort of uh, expand our scope slightly and talk and talk about this this news from the u.s in that context Of course. I mean, we've seen, for instance, despite the victory
4: of a pro-Russia populist in in elections in Slovakia last weekend, Europe has sent increasing amounts of weapons and aid to Ukraine. Um, But it wouldn't be able to scale up the military or economic support to plug a hole left by the loss of the US assistance. Uh, Brussels is ready to release billions of euros in frozen EU funds to Hungary to convince Budapest to support an increase in financial support Ukraine. That's according to the Financial Times. And the European Commission wants a 57200000000 billion top-up to the EU budget to cover increased costs. That includes £43.3 billion pounds worth of support for a programme for Kyiv for the next four years. Uh, Viktor Orban, the Hungarian Prime Minister, has vowed to block any boost unless his country receives the frozen levelling-up funds, which were blocked over concerns of his backsliding on the rule of law.
1: And just finally, Jamie, thank you so much for all of this. But could you talk a little bit more about Slovakia? We've, we've talked through the news over the past week of the victory of the pro-Russian Robert Fietso, but the, the news is always more nuanced than sometimes we think. And, and um, would you just talk to us a little bit about what you've seen?
4: Of course. So what we've seen in Slovakia is a European Commission vice president has insisted he backs Ukraine to the hilt after his part, political party won elections in Slovakia campaigning for an end to sending weapons to Kyiv and sanctions against Moscow. So he's Brexit negotiator Maros, Maros Shevchovich. Um, he's a member of SMUR, which uh, triumphed in Saturday evening's vote under the leadership of pro-Russian populist Robert Fietso. He opposes Western sanctions against Moscow. Do I support sanctions? Of course I do. Do I support military support for Ukraine? Of course I do. I'm surprised I have to say that, Mr Shevchovich said. The EU Brexit negotiator said that he had received an award from Volodymyr Zelensky for being a friend to Ukraine. That's who I am and that's how I hope you will also remember me, he said. So there's a bit of a, uh, a bit of a strange path going on there. But he's faced questions over his relations with Mr. F- with Mr. Fizzo while being grilled by MEPs on Tuesday morning over his appointments as the new EU climate czar. Mr. Fizzo must form a coalition before he can take power. So that's certainly an area to watch.
1: Thank you very much, Jamie Johnson, for talking us through all of that. Uh, later in today's podcast, we'll have an interview from uh, our own Francis Dernley with Victoria Coates, uh, one of President Trump's longest-serving staffers. Um, It'll be really interesting, really fascinating to hear her thoughts on U.S. support for Ukraine. And we're going to put it in today to sort of give a little more context and nuance to the debates within the Republican Party that we've seen boil up over the past few weeks. Uh, and as, as of course, as Jamie says, one of the contrib- contributing factors to the ousting of Speaker McCarthy. Well, thank you very much, Jamie, for that. And do listen later to Francis's interview. We'll put it in the podcast tonight. Um news from britain if you're following conservative party conference you'd have seen that rishi sunak the british prime minister has just given his his address it's i think it was almost more than an hour he's been speaking ukraine hasn't turned up that much in the speech we haven't really gone too hard on it in our live blog we'll probably have some analysis of his positions and his thoughts later on in the week uh, just to say from me i was obviously up in a conservative party conference over the past few days and we'll have interviews with ukrainian mps who are present and british mps working on on ukrainian issues so we'll put them in the podcast tomorrow thursday and friday Uh, and thank you of course to the conservative mps and the ukrainian mps who took their time to speak to me at conservative party conference just goes to say of course that i'll be up at labor conference this coming weekend and next week so of course if you would like to say hello there please do um since francis's interview is quite a long one dom and jamie can i just get your final thoughts dom would you like to go first
3: yeah sure so just um finishing off the uh well continuing the thoughts about the about uh, western arms because of course we should expect russia to leap in there and say ah the west is fracturing the the support is dwindling you're not getting any more weapons so we do need to keep this as a live discussion and it would be wrong to characterize this as oh there's nothing to see here it's all fine of course it's not it's not fine if people are talking about uh, a potential limit to uh, to weapon supplies and so on and so forth but i don't think it's that dire and hence we need to Keep the conversation going. I would just point to three things to say to where we should look for to see if, if how healthy or unhealthy this side of the uh, of the debate is at, at the moment. Ramstein, right? That's the process. The Ukraine Contact Group. That's the US-led fifty whatever it is fifty-four countries sitting around a table once a month, saying, pledging military kit. So it happened. It was at Ramstein again, two or three weeks ago. So. Next one of those that comes up, not quite sure exactly where, where it's going to be, but let's have a look at that and see if if people are sitting on their hands or or rely more on nice warm words than actually saying, yeah, you can have 12 archers and, and a few stormers and et cetera, et cetera. So Ramstein, that does the weapons. EU, that's the kind of diplomatic bit at the moment. And we saw Joseph Burrell, he's um, the head of the Foreign Service there, taking all 27 well, those the inviting all 27, don't think they all actually went, don't think Hungary's went, to, to 27 foreign ministers invited to have a meeting in Kiev. So that's shoring up or showing very strong diplomatic support from the EU with a pathway to um, EU membership for, for Ukraine eventually. So let's see if, if there's any any um, watering down of, of that front as well. So Ramstein for weapons, EU for the diplomatic, and finally NATO for well, NATO stuff, I suppose, basically. But, you know, the very, very strong support and absolutely not a fag paper between um, Mr. Zelensky and uh, Jens Stoltenberg, NATO Secretary General, uh, in terms of support. Jens Stoltenberg absolutely behind Continued support for Ukraine, so no, no, nothing at all. Despite all these rumblings, which, as I've said before, are a sign of a healthy democracy, they do not show fractures. This is what friends can do. It comes as a surprise to Russia t- to see that they see every sort of difference of opinion as a as a crack that's going to splinter the the uh, the alliance. But as far as I'm concerned, there's absolutely no, no difference in NATO's position. EU are very, very strong on their views towards, towards Ukraine and Rammstein's process. Well, that was as strong as ever a couple of weeks ago. So, yeah, we'll keep the conversation going, but I'm not, I'm not crying into my chips just yet.
1: Thank you very much, Dom. And to finish, Jamie, thank you so much earlier for talking us through the historic news from the US. How significant is it?
4: I think it is significant. I think there's two two factors here, one on each side of the Atlantic. I've just seen, obviously, Rishi Sunak has been speaking, as you mentioned, and he's just tweeted out, we were the first country to send tanks to Kiev. Now more than 10 others have followed. We were the first country to agree to train Ukrainian pilots. Now over a dozen others do so too. I say this to our allies. Give Zelensky the tools. The Ukrainians will finish the job. And he, Zelensky, has literally just tweeted in reply. Thank you, Rishi Sunak. The UK's leadership in supporting Ukraine is deeply appreciated. That looks to be a pretty rock solid relationship. And obviously, the UK has an election in 2024. There, there isn't a huge amount of dispute about funding from UK point of view. However, on the other side of the Atlantic in the US, what we're seeing is as the war is 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 dragging on, There is a growing resistance to provide aid for Ukraine um, from within what is an increasingly isolationist Republican Party. So obviously the criticism of the support has come from mainly sort of Republicans who support Donald Trump, who's obviously the frontrunner to face Mr. Biden in next year's presidential election. But it would be wrong just to class this as 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 a Trumpian thing. There's definitely a wing of the party and quite a significant number who would rather focus on issues at home. I mean, even Kevin McCarthy said last weekend that he supports linking new funding to tougher controls on the U.S. border with Mexico. Quite frankly, sometimes Ukraine can feel a long way away from people who live in rural Kentucky or other areas or, or down on the southern border with Arizona, it feels like an issue that basically, as as Ron DeSantis said, the Europeans should be able to take the lead on. It shouldn't be America. So last week we saw nearly half of Republicans in Congress voting to cut $300 million to train Ukrainian soldiers and buy weapons from a defence bill. Uh, The aid was later approved separately, but that goes in pretty sharp contrast to what um, Rishi Sunak has just been tweeting. So obviously the bigger picture is that there are fears that this dispute could encourage Vladimir Putin to sort of engage in a longer war in the hope that with elections on the horizon, war fatigue in the West could eventually take its toll.
0: Thanks, David, Dom and Jamie. In today's podcast, we hear more about the ongoing battles within the Republican Party and how they are shaping the political landscape of the United States. Ukraine remains one of the fault lines of that debate. And whilst in Washington, David and I were keen to hear the views of experts in this particular subject. You'll hear David's interview in a moment. But first, my conversation with former Deputy National Security Advisor to President Donald Trump, Victoria Coates. We discuss her insider reflections on the scepticism within the Republicans towards America's current support of Kyiv, as well as Trump's true stance on the war and the broader security threats she worked on during her time in the Trump administration. I started by asking her to introduce herself and the work of the Heritage Foundation.
2: I'm Victoria Coates. I currently serve as the vice president of the Catherine and Shelby Collin Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation in previous incarnations. I served on the Trump National Security Council staff, uh, ultimately as the Deputy National Security Advisor for the Middle East and North Africa. Before that, I was the National Security Advisor to Senator Ted Cruz for five years. And before that, I was Director of Research for former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld.
0: Thank you very much. And let's start with the Heritage Foundation. There'll be many listeners in the United States who are familiar with it, but there'll be many in Britain and in Europe who aren't. So can you just start by talking us through what is heritage and what does it do? What does it stand on on some of the core issues?
2: Absolutely. And it it is a top priority for our president, Kevin Roberts, to increase familiarity in the United Kingdom to heritage as a staunch partner, ally, conservative institution that Crosses the Atlantic. He's visited the UK a number of times since he became president. We'll be heading back next month. So this is a, a personal commitment of his. Heritage recently marked our 50th anniversary. So we were in many ways a Cold War institution as originally conceived. We're very, very close to the Reagan White House in terms of the policies we were crafting in the late 70s and 80s to support that conservative revolution and since then have grown in scale to be the largest conservative think tank in Washington. And what makes us different from a number of our our colleagues, the Foundation for Defense of Democracy, the Hudson Institute, all with whom we collaborate closely. But Heritage is a much broader institution. What we do on national defense is really only 20-30% of what we do as a think tank. So where we take that as the Davis Institute as a great point of strength is if I am identifying an issue like energy or immigration and border security as a national security issue, you know, traditionally outside the purview of what you'd call foreign policy, but very much a national security issue. I have elements already inside my building who have been working hard on those issues. And as we deal with the problem set like China in particular, There is an education component. China is infiltrating our educational institutions from K through PhD and trying to exploit what they've identified as a weakness. So I need to know about education to be able to combat that threat. So that's really where heritage is. You. Oh, and then finally, our placement. We're looking out the window. We can see the top of the Capitol Dome. We're there. It's a beautiful uh, Washington day. Yes. And it's a beautiful Washington day, but we are right up, smack up on Capitol Hill. And so, as European partners and allies are trying to navigate the hill, we can assist with that and run point between primarily Republicans. There are some Democrats that talk to us, which is nice, and Capitol Hill. So, thank you. And
0: obviously, very keen to hear about your experiences in government, as it were, in positions of authority. What of your experiences, what period, what events, sticks out most to you in the foreign affairs space that you were involved?
2: Well, I mean, there are probably two. One would be working with Senator Cruz on Ukraine issues 2014-2015 timeframe around the seizure of Crimea and the 1st trip abroad, I took with him, which was in May of 14. Our second stop, our first stop was Jerusalem, our second stop was Kiev. And he was one of the first elected officials to meet with Poroshenko, who had just been elected, was not yet inaugurated as president of Ukraine. So it's it's an issue with which I've tangled over this really last decade, which is, is helpful to have some perspective on it. It didn't drop on me out of the blue in February of, of 22, but you know, has been part of my rhythm for a while now. And and certainly working in the Trump administration, both on the N.S.C. and then my last year was at the Department of Energy, which was a hugely educational experience to get out of the White House into a department and look at energy as a national security issue. And the, the posture of the United States really over the last decade has changed so dramatically as we became one of the world's big three producers. So it's the Russians, the Saudis, and us. And one of those things is not like the others. So the United States, I think, has not fully come to terms with what it means to be a global energy superpower. That's not what we've been. And we at Heritage have a very strong emphasis on climate and conservation. Conservation has conservative in it, So we think that is preserving a clean, nurturing environment is a priority for us, but not at the expense of human thriving. And so what we're working on is mapping an energy plan that will responsibly fuel literally the future and that we can now play a role. And certainly the experience of Ukraine, which in many ways is an energy war, The way we were able to surge, even under what I would see as a very burdensome regulatory environment imposed by our current leadership, enough gas to help Europe, we need to retain that capacity going forward. What the president just did in terms of canceling the Alaska leases, actually not huge projects in and of themselves, but the signal is so chilling that you couldn't have all your proper lawful leases, you could have them for six years, you can be working away on your project, and somebody can just come along and pluck them out. Why would you do that? Why would you develop a project? So that's a very strong concern that was really born out of that last year in the administration in energy. You're starting to think about energy as one of our great strategic assets.
0: That's very interesting. And we'll come back to 2014 in a moment. As you say, Heritage has a lot of connections with the Republican Party. You served in a Republican administration. What do you think of the Republican position at the moment, as articulated by many of the candidates running for the uh, nomination around the matter of Ukraine?
2: I think the, the frustration that a number of Republicans have is not with Ukraine or the Ukrainians. And there remains pretty broad bipartisan support. And um, question the American people about Ukraine and Putin. They're pretty clear-eyed. There is some fringe element who finds something appealing about Vladimir Putin. He's ruined too many of my weekends for me to be in that camp. So, you know, I have no interests in accommodating his, what I consider to be unpardonable, aggression. But I also see American administration that was dead wrong at the start of the war. This has happened to others. So that's not, you know, a deadly sin. But I have seen no pivot to recover from that. That last summer, when it was clear this wasn't going to be a three-day war, where is the emergency summit of major NATO allies saying, can we get this wrapped up by this winter? Is there a strategic plan for how we're going to arm Ukraine and get Putin to knock this off? Because it's so destructive for everyone. And that has never happened. And what we've had are these endless... Supplemental requests, which bust our budget caps, on the one hand and on the other, are always tacked to must-pass legislation. So there's no debate. You know, where has the president ever come to the Congress and given an address on his strategy for Ukraine? He has not. His strategy, as far as I can glean, is as much as it takes, as long as it takes. Then you're going to wind up with a lot of dead Ukrainians, and I'm not sure that's not a strategy. And so we hear they want another $24 billion. Fine, I understand that's not the end of the world in terms of numbers, but we are dealing with a bad fiscal situation here, so it's significant and needs to be looked at. Then they tell us, well, this is just through Q1 of next year. So you're telling me you don't see this wrapped up within a year? You don't have a plan to wrap it up? And you're not looking for one. You're just planning to come back to the Congress in April of next year and ask for another $24 billion. But do you think the Republican Party would
0: realistically be stronger on supporting cray.
2: We might spend, I mean, there certainly is an appetite for that among some members, Senator Wicker, Senator McConnell, for example. And if they were in a position not simply to appropriate funds, but to spend the funds, they could make that case. And that's where I've differed with them. They're partners and allies, obviously. But I can appropriate all the money in the world. I can't force the president to spend it in a responsible fashion. And when he's running around saying things like, oh, I'm going to put something in the pockets of all Ukrainians, which he said last March. I'm sorry, that's not the job of the U.S. taxpayer. You know, if you want to focus on military aid to defeat Putin, you are going to get a sympathetic audience. If you're trying to build a welfare state in Ukraine, you're not. If anybody's going to do that, it should be Brussels. Donald Trump
0: is obviously the favorite Mm -hmm. to win the nomination, If he becomes president, what do you think he will do on the matter of Ukraine and foreign affairs, more broadly?
2: I mean, I think he would continue on as he did in his first term. It's pretty clear where Trump stands on these issues. The fact of the matter is that Putin invaded Georgia under George W. Bush. He seized Crimea under President Obama and he invaded Ukraine proper under Joe Biden. There's one name missing from that list, which is Donald Trump. He did not take aggressive military action in Europe under President Trump, because while they had a working relationship, Trump was also very clear with them that there were going to be serious penalties if he went into Ukraine, and Putin decided not to take that risk. So I think Trump would very much want to end the war. I think he would see that as the United States, he actually has significant leverage over both parties. We have not imposed the very serious sanctions on Russia that would end the war. Especially if we, I mean, if we did secondary financial institution sanctions in conjunction with the UK and the EU, they, they see, they have to come to the table. And you think that that's something that could conceivably happen? We went pretty far against the Iranians, so we know how to do it.
0: Because I, to you then, the understanding and rhetoric at the moment with regard to Donald Trump is, is quite the reverse. Mm-hmm. This sort of feeling that, that he would, you know, he said himself, he would try and end the war on day one, but how, what would that look like? How would he do that? I
2: mean, and I haven't talked to him about it, so this is my extrapolation, but understanding how he functions, he would see that as getting both parties to the negotiating table in a situation where he has leverage over both and can get to a resolution to this that ends the carnage, ends the economic pain for Americans, which is real, ends the food insecurity. These are all things that concern him, but not just Hand the whole thing to putin that's not the solution to the war, and that's why not having u s support for the war right now geared toward supporting that geared mean strategically provided to Ukraine to advance them on the battlefield and you know leave the civil society stuff to Brussels because you want to get to a negotiation where there's there's leverage, so you're not just handing the whole thing to Putin. You know, that seems to me reasonable. When you say the whole thing, you mean that the
0: occupied territory? Right. No, rather not just the whole not right. the whole country. Right. No, but, but, yes.
2: but, you know, they've taken back whatever it is, 50, 60 percent, get them to the point where mm. you know, we can come to a resolution that is clearly a loss.
0: So you think it would be advisable for there potentially to be a peace in Ukraine that lets Russia keep some territories acquired for a
2: You know, this is a question for the Ukrainians, you know, what they can tolerate and what they would tolerate to end the war. You know, and that's a question for them. But from my perspective, getting them to the point where they feel they have leverage, that this can be a good, good deal for them, they deserve it. And then figuring out what the parameters are to, as I said, get this wrapped up. Where do you see the United States in the long
0: term, that's thinking sort of 5, 10, 20 years, being in the energy space? I mean, do you think it will be able to provide assurances for... Europe and other countries in a sort of in that kind of defense architecture sense?
2: We certainly should. We have vast untapped resources. I'm from Pennsylvania. We're the second largest natural gas producing state, with the whole east part of the state has not been developed. So there is enormous capacity, particularly in the natural gas field, for us to expand into. And the good news about that is that has been bringing our emissions down year over year for almost a decade. And so we are headed in the right direction as Europe is headed in the right direction. Another arena where we have a lot of upside is uh, civil nuclear. And, you know, some good signs coming out of Europe. The Hungarians are shifting from the Russians to the French to service their civil nuclear, I think, as first world economies in the EU, the UK and the United States. We need that power. And if I understand one thing about AI, and that's tentative, the data processing centers, their need for power is going to be exponential. And my concern is it is the directive of the current U.S. administration to, by either incentive or punishment, force the move to electrification and then make that electricity supply dependent on renewables as much as they humanly can which is simply not a reliable baseload source of power and so we would argue that moving toward you know expanding our civil nuclear expanding our natural gas looking at fusion looking at you know and I know the UK would, is one of our great partners on fusion if you start thinking about it that way and looking at a hundred year time frame the future looks pretty bright now if we're going to force the renewables and we pick a goal like us net zero 2035 which is our stated goal we can't do it without china we couldn't make that stuff here in time even if it were fiscally feasible which it's not so if we're going to get to 2035 which i actually think is impossible regardless but even by, if you can come up with very rosy projections You're going to have to have Chinese solar panels and EBS and wind turbines. There's no way around it. And the production of those will make the world a dirtier place. So you could get the U.S. to this mythical, but how much have you belched out of China? And oh, by the way, you've also committed to net zero 2050 globally. And that's impossible unless China stops Belgium. So all of this right now is internally conflicted. The intentions are good, but what we're getting out of it is not good. Will it
0: stay on China? Famously, the Trump administration was more hawkish on China than many previous administrations. I believe the current administration included in that. Where's your new stand on China and the threat, Mm -hmm. so-called, of China in the long
2: term? No, it's it's really been a part of my evolving thinking really since 2016 timeframe when it started to become... Although, actually, I take it back to 2011, when I was working for then-Governor Perry, and he had a real problem with Huawei in Texas. And what had happened was, after George W. Bush got China into the World Trade Organization, very consistent with his father's policy, understand the impulse behind it, but then, you know, it was engage Chinese companies, bring them to the United States, specifically bring them to Texas, get them establish, create jobs, do all these things. It sounded great. We will will liberalize them economically and then they'll liberalize politically and life would understand it. And so what Perry did in 2007, 2008 timeframe came back him in 2011. And that was an eye opener for me. But then much more so over the last five years, you know, as we started to deal with China, particularly on the 5G issue, now on the renewables, I think it's the same playbook. To create dependency and dominance for Chinese industries and dependence on the part of what they would consider to be their adversaries, that we have to see this as an all of nation effort. And it's it's going to be everything from agriculture to, as we were talking about, education to energy. You, know, All of these fields are part of it. And we have enormous resources. We have enormous advantages in this. They have some pretty significant demographic problems they can't solve. I mean, and they're the ones who did it. They basically murdered half their population. And that's now playing out over the next 50 years. Can't come back from that. But at the same time, they also are very powerful. They're very determined. But in a way, our greatest asset is the fact that we have allies. They don't have allies. They have dependents. They have vassals. But they don't have allies. And I believe it was Winston Churchill who said that the only thing worse than fighting with allies is fighting without. Al- it's very interesting. And you mentioned a moment ago that, that
0: heritage is a Cold War foundation. Mm-hmm. That's that's its origins. Do you think, when we look at the geopolitical context at the moment with Russia, with China, these sort of blocks falling between autocracies and democracies, do you think we are entering already in a Cold War II type situation? Or do you think we're on the precipice of that?
2: I think we are. And I mean, what you see with Kim in Moscow today, Maduro in Beijing today, these kind of lesser states being gathered into the bigger ones in what really is a new axis. And the good news is they've revealed themselves. They're, nobody's trying to do this in a furtive way. So everybody sees what's going on. And the other people, sort of thing is is these countries like north korea and venezuela can be useful but they come with some pretty serious problems you know do you really want to peg your currency to one of those currencies you know that a lot of contagion there that can be a big problem so making those problems worse is a good thing to do and being very clear-eyed about it that you know i would prefer that china had liberalized over the last decade that China were a partner to the United States. They're not. And they are showing absolutely no signs of wanting to be. So I can't force them into good behavior. If they insist in behaving this way, and certainly what they did to Hong Kong is, is case in point, then my role is to make their lives as miserable as possible. And if they want that to change, that would be easy enough, but their behavior is going to have to change. So that's just the reality I think we face.
0: Is there a West strategy for dealing with and hostile powers? I mean, if you contrast, say, the Cold War, where there was, I think, a greater clarity about what needed to be done to contain, do you get that sense that there is? I mean, you've been in the room, you know, with the most senior conversations around these matters. Is there a strategy? Is there a philosophical underpinning to how to approach these problems?
2: There is a developing. I mean, it's come as a surprise because you know the decision in 1989 when Tiananmen Square happened. On the part of the United States, then the George H.W. Bush administration was, don't push back. We're going to keep bringing them towards us. And he had been CIA director and ambassador to China. I mean, this was not an unintelligent or uninformed person, but that turned out to be a flawed assumption, ultimately. So switching that mindset that we don't want to have too much economic exposure. And, you know, one thing that's not discussed much is uh, the massive U.S. hedge funds who have tremendous China exposure. A lot of people's retirements that are very dependent on China, and that is a problem. So figuring out how we start to disaggregate that vulnerability, look at other markets. You know, India is looking a whole lot more appealing now than China is with their problems. And so how do we make sure they're coming with us? You know, and I think it's incumbent on the United States to point out to them, why are you hanging out with the BRICS right now? You are so much better than that and so much more potential. Uh, You know, it's not telling the Indians what to do. It's giving them an alternative to, you know, hanging out with some pretty weak and needy developing partners when they are starting to be in a much more powerful position of strength. And then, again, just figuring out how the United States and our partners and allies offer alternatives so we don't get into a 5G situation where suddenly everyone's saying, well, we have to go to Huawei because all of your companies have gone out of business. Ah, Amazing. You know, and the same thing on, on energy that, you know, yes, we will continue to pursue responsible policies, but at the same time, we have to fuel the future. We can't be dependent.
0: Thank you very much for your time.
2: Absolutely. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Francis. When we were in Washington, I spoke to Robert Doar, president of the American Enterprise Institute. I was curious to learn more about Republican support for Ukraine, where it came from, and how it manifests in the party, especially with the upcoming presidential election. Well, thank you so much for your time. Over the last few days in Washington, something I've heard again and again is from American commentators and analysts – is the idea that American politicians and policymakers need to be able to make the case to the American public for support for Ukraine. Why are we doing it? How do you make that case with the average person, not a policymaker, not somebody on the Hill or the Capitol, ordinary people living ordinary lives, concerned with taxes, schooling, local politics? How should policymakers be talking to them?
5: Well, the first thing I'd say is, I think in some regard the case has been made because the representatives of the people in the Congress and the president have invested 70 billion dollars in helping Ukraine and the United States effort in Ukraine is in helping Ukraine is very significant so those arguments about our own interests the competition with China the benefits of defeating Russia the rightness of the cause of protecting a smaller country that's facing up against a bully that has invaded their territory the strengthening of the European alliances Those arguments have all played out in the media and in the halls of Congress. I was with a governor recently who said, the people in my state get it. They understand the importance of this. Seventy percent of Republican voters still support strongly the, and I think Democrat voters are also overwhelmingly for it. I guess I'd say the case has been made and is being made. But as it goes on longer, you really need presidential leadership and someone to make a statement to the country and to take the case and put it through in an effective way, a presidential address. That's how you do it. And it's surprising that we haven't had that. And yet we've had this quite remarkable effort on the part of the United States to help Ukraine defend itself against the invasion of their country by Russia.
1: Could you take us a little bit inside the sort of national American factors that can influence the debates over support for Ukraine? What should us foreigners try and understand and know about your internal politics and how that might change upcoming opinion polls and elections?
5: There uh, isn't any question that a argument that's a, a, entirely based on a moral freedom, self-determination type argument, America coming to the rescue of a, of a beleaguered state, that isn't enough. You've got to make it show that... Over the long haul, if we defeat Russia, it sends a message to China. It makes China and Russia weaker in the long-term competition that will actually save us money in the long run. That we are, without actually expending American soldiers or American troops, we're severely depleting the strength of the Russian army. A defeat to Russia on this uh, could solidify the European situation in, in the other countries. So you have to make the argument that it's not just the right thing to do, but it's also going to long-term save us money and save us from having to do something much more dramatic and unpleasant later. And that's what they have to do. And, th- and I think the relationship with China in this is importantly Im- important because a lot of Americans do feel that there is a long-term twilight struggle with China already begun. And if they get a sense that this is in the interest of getting us off to a good start in that long-term struggle, they will support it.
1: Could you talk to us about the Republican Party, the movers and shakers, what you make of their positions on Ukraine? And I, I guess I'm particularly interested in, we heard, I think it was yesterday, Elliot Cohen was talking about how he's unsure some of these, some of their positions are entirely theirs. They might just be aping Trump because he's the sort of the sun, his gravity pulls their, their views with him. What do you make of that?
5: Well, so first on the Republican movers and shakers, the minority leader in the United States Senate, Mitch McConnell, has been a great leader on this. And the overwhelming majority of his caucus has supported him. You wouldn't be able to get the significant appropriations and the support for Ukraine that's already taken place. And so I think there are more Republicans who, if you ask them about the what's their just basic view on Ukraine, they'd say, we haven't done enough and what we've done has been too late, then you would have Republicans who say we're doing too much and we ought to retreat. And I think that Speaker McCarthy has also, he has to acknowledge a certain part of his caucus, but overwhelmingly the bulk of his caucus and the chairman of his major committee and he himself have been strong supporters of the effort to support Ukraine so far. And so I think that's a good thing. And sometimes we get all excited about the, the minority voices that make a lot of noise in opposition and miss the fact that the appropriation bill passed and the money's been allocated and the armaments are being delivered. And the United States military is helping Ukraine all it can, short of being in Ukraine. And so there are great leaders. Senator Portman, who's an AEI scholar here at AEI. Um, before he left the Senate, was a great leader of this initiative. There are many leaders that have been. Susan Collins, Senator Collins of Maine. They're not always the the loudest voice or they're not getting the most attention from people that want to call attention to the dissenters, but they do carry the majority. So that's that. I think the second part of your question was, oh, the campaign and how the campaign will affect it. Well, there you've got, it's a presidential campaign in the United States. So we've got a. A bunch of candidates and they have a variety of views. But I've been impressed by governor, former governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, strong support for Ukraine. Certainly Vice President Pence. He was here at AAI. He made a strong case for helping Ukraine. And Governor Christie went to Ukraine and he on the campaign trail is recounting just abhorrent examples of Russian bombardments of civilian populations the kidnapping of the Ukrainian children. So he's making a very strong case. And then there's a few others that have said that represent the more isolationist wing of the Republican Party that said have said other things. I think that, and we'll see in the campaign how it plays out, but I think the emerging candidate will be more likely to be supporting Ukraine than the other way around. With the one wild card being the former president of the United States, who could be the leading candidate, or he is the leading candidate now and could be the nominee. I don't know that he will be. And I think Europeans should understand, we have a ways to go in this race. It's not over by any means. And he's been all over the map. He doesn't really say what he thinks, except I'm going to fix it. And so there's that.
1: That's really fascinating. Thank you. What do you think, in terms of aid and support, the US could do better? I mean, you've already mentioned the kind of the communication potentially from the president. But what else do you think the country could do better to help Ukraine?
5: I have a sense that the Ukraine needs more of what we've been giving. And certainly the delay on the F-16s and the air cover has been a problem. And that's something that the United States and Europe has considered. And I gather there's in a year or so or six months or fairly soon. I don't know what the latest is. That will come. But having said that, I I think that you know better than I know, probably because you follow this much more closely, Ukraine is a much smaller country than Russia. Russia has resources and people that are larger than what Ukraine has. And if this becomes a war of attrition between a country that can throw hundreds of thousands of people into the maw, that's going to be a real problem. So I wonder if really what we can provide is a different strategy that overcomes that unequal balance between the two countries.
1: Looking back over the last 18 months of the full-scale invasion, what lessons do you take? What new things have you learned from what you've seen in Ukraine and the US's response?
5: Well, the first lesson is that a committed and, and organized and smart and determined defender of their country can defeat a much bigger opponent that is supposedly world power. And I do think sometimes in the current situation we're in now, we may miss the long-term historical implication, which is that Russia tried to invite you, invade Ukraine and the world thought that it would be a walkover. And Ukraine pushed them back decisively. And I acknowledge that if it's stops where it is now which i don't want it to it'll look as if russia gained a little more than what they'd already acquired but let's not forget russia's war aims were much different and to me it will still i would want us i would want the ukrainian people i want the europeans and i want the americans to characterize what's happened already as a victory for ukraine now, that, that may be counter to what others are saying, but it's remember, when I, had, I was in Germany not so long ago, and I met with a German journalist who covers this very closely, and I asked him, on the eve of the invasion, when you knew you, Russia was invading, what did you think was going to happen? And he said, I called my friends in Kiev and said, get out. It's over. And I, I'm stunned at what has happened. And let's not forget that. Because Putin has embarrassed himself in front of the world. He's lost hundreds of thousands of Russian soldiers. His country is destabilized. And he's been beaten back by a country a fraction of the size of Russia.
1: You mentioned China in your first answer, I believe. What do you think the implications of this war and the way it's unfolding are for U.S. competition and relations with China?
5: Well, the simple answer, the one that you'll get from everybody is that if you defeat Russia or make Russia pay a very high price for what its aggressive behavior in this part of the world, it will make China think more carefully about invading Taiwan. And I think that's true. So that's number one, is that that weakness or a failure to, to show resolve against a bully leads to the bully thinking they can do more things. And so I think we've accomplish that and and beyond that if we were to conti- if we were to if we were to if ukraine were to succeed in defeating russia completely uh, that would only further make that point and china would be china doubled down on its relationship with russia i think they've hurt them themselves in the eyes of the world again europeans germany has a lot of business in china china does not help itself by associating itself with Russia in the eyes of Europeans. It doesn't. And even for Americans who are less hawkish towards China, this doesn't make them happy. They feel it undermines the reputation of China in the world. So if your question is, do I think there's an opportunity to send a message to China and have China feel um, pain because of their association of Russia, I think that's happening.
1: What did you make of President Biden's uh, visits to Europe? He's been to Poland, he's been to Kiev, of course. I'm really curious, how did that go down in the US? How was that seen here and understood here? What was the reaction?
5: I don't, you know, study every particular political poll, so I can't say. I think that people who know that it's important for the United States to play a strong role in the world and are proud of our country when we stand up for freedom and self-determination and a smaller country when it's being bullied by a larger country. We're proud of that effort by President Biden. I don't think he does it with a lot of charisma. It's uh, What's going through my mind, and and you're a Brit, I think, Boris Johnson strolling through the streets of Kiev, that that really, that captured my imagination. That was Churchillian in a way. Uh, President Biden is not that.
1: That's really fascinating. (laughs) Do you, do you think that Americans are feeling taking in Ukrainians, helping them find jobs, helping them assimilate, taking care of them? You know, sort of a new appreciation, maybe, of the value of democracy and freedom.
5: Maybe I, I'm not maybe. so sure about that mm. because I don't think we've—I don't think it's as present in people's minds, average Americans' minds. But I was in Poland, and also after the invasion of Ukraine, and the enormous effort on the part of the Polish people to absorb the Ukrainian refugees, and was remarkable. And it bolstered the pride of Poland and the pride of Poland as being an ally to the West in opposition to Russia. That was clear. Now, as time goes on, and it becomes harder and more difficult, and uh, that can fray. And But I don't see any I, you have to, it's, America's so big, and people are so different. My son is in the United States military. He's a second lieutenant in the United States Army. He's in Germany, deployed to train Ukrainian soldiers. The families and the people that I'm associated with because of that, we're very proud. But I can't say that, that we represent the vast majority of the American people. But there are Americans who feel great pride in the fact that, once again, The United States is leading a cause that is good. And if it wasn't, if we weren't doing it, it might not happen.
1: Is there anything you want to say to our listeners? Anything that I haven't asked you that you think is an important thing to talk about or mention?
5: When they are observing American politics, don't only rely on the New York Times. (laughs) And also be aware that the loudest voices, especially now in American politics, aren't necessarily representative of the vast majority of the American people. What's happening in America right now, for lots of reasons, is that loud voices on the fringes of both political parties are seem to be getting all the attention. And the large group in the middle, the 60 percent in the middle, are sometimes being drowned out and not heard, but they are, they're still there and they don't see the way, the world, the way these louder voices do. And they see it in a way that I think represents more of what I've been saying.
1: That's very optimistic to hear. Thank you so yeah. much for your time. Thank
5: you. I'm generally optimistic, Kai.
1: <laughs> Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.